0: Hey everyone, and welcome to this second ever School of the Word online series. Um, Appreciate you joining as we continue to live and adjust to this uh, less embodied season of life. Um, I'm excited to be starting a new series, though. Um, We're gonna be going through the book of Micah. Micah is seven chapters long, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament, and so um, my hope is that we will get through this series in seven weeks, taking this one chapter at a time. Well, before we get into chapter one, I want to spend a little time thinking about why we should study Micah in the first place. Uh, A few reasons. One, the first reason is really, I think this is what the Lord is leading us to study for this season. Um, I'm by no means a Micah expert. This is not something I just had uh, waiting that I'd really like to talk about. In fact, uh, one of the reasons that we had the amount of time we did between the last series and this series is that... That's about how long it took me to read and study Micah and figure out what I thought we were supposed to talk about in this book. Um, But but as I've gone through, there's a couple things I'm really excited about that we're gonna get out of this series. One, I think that Micah is really representative of the prophetic books in general. Um, the, The prophets take up about one quarter, if you count just the verses, of the whole Bible. But I would guess that This section of the Bible is probably one Christians are the least comfortable with, probably the least confident in saying that they understand what to do with it when you pick it up and read it or go to try to figure out what it says about how we should live today. And so um, I realize there's a few reasons for that. One, the prophets are really a pretty different genre than we're used to reading. Right? They're, they're not a narrative where you can just follow the characters and the plot line along what's happening, that we're pretty used to doing that. They don't have clear instructions like the letters of Paul do that's, that's written to situations and, and instructing the church on how to live. They're, they're really often closer to poetry. And, and I don't know about you, but I don't know a whole lot of people that read poetry all that Often, and so uh, probably a lot of us are going to have to find some literary muscles that we haven't exercised very much. Uh, Figure out what to do with stark contrasts and changing tones that can often be disorienting as we read them. And also, the context of the prophets is not always spelled out for us. Uh, These books are very much set in the national drama of what's going on in Israel at the end of its life, but um, the The prophets don't tell you that context in the books themselves; they kind of assume that you understand the history of what 's going on, and they give you some links and some references to figure out what time they 're speaking in. but if you don 't do a little bit of background work, um, and, and i don 't mean go buy like a three hundred page commentary and read through the whole thing there, but if you don 't go figure out where in the histories in Kings and Chronicles these books are referencing and and kind of what was going on at that time and the issues that they're dealing with, um, it's gonna be pretty confusing to try to figure out what the prophets are talking about in the first place. So uh, my hope is is that we go through this study of Micah. Um, It will equip you the next time you come to any of the prophetic books. It will help you next time you read Isaiah or Nahum know at least what questions to be asking Um, how to orient yourself, and and what to do with some of the language that these books are using. Uh, But another reason that I I think I'm excited to read through Micah is that I I think Micah really is pretty relevant to what's been going on in our world today. Um, Some of the major themes of Micah are God's judgment and um, dealing with justice or injustice among the people um, in, in a real way, Micah is declaring God's judgment on the social injustice going on among his people at the time. And, and through this book, we get to see not only the judgment that God declares, but what God's heart is, how he feels about that judgment as he's declaring it. And the series title for this is, uh, is The Heart of Judgment. And by that, I don't mean that Micah is a judgy book, that he's got a judgy heart, Um, What I mean is that through Micah, we get to see the heart of God as he declares judgment. Um, In the prophets, probably more than any other book, we get to see the emotional drama of what's going on inside God. We get to understand in a unique way how he relates to fallen humanity, how he feels about us, what he thinks about the situations that we're feeling and, and we're dealing with and what he expects of his people as they're living in a fallen world. And so I hope that we see as we read Micah that this is not mainly a book about a situation that happened 2,700 years ago, but that this book is about the heart of God as he relates to fallen humanity. So with that little bit of introduction to the series, let's jump in and get started in Micah Chapter one, gonna read this first verse here to start of orient us in the book. It says, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Morsheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. All right, now stop there, you, you read that first verse and it might just sort of sound like a bunch of names, but, but this is really packed full of information Micah assumes you know not only these names, but the situations that they represent. It'd be kind of like me saying that God spoke to Mark from North Alabama in the days of JFK, Nixon, and Martin Luther King, right? I didn't just give you a list of names there. I gave you a context. I just dropped you into a situation, and now we're anticipating what is God gonna say about this setting? So what is the context that Micah is trying to clue us into here? Well, if you want to go read the historical references, you could go read 2 Kings 15 through 20 to see what's going on during the lives of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. In in fact, because this is a digital production, you could actually pause right now and go read that. I would encourage you. It would be pretty helpful to understand the context and the feeling of what's going on. Okay, so either you did that or you didn't. Um, and for those who didn't, which I assume there will be some, uh, a little bit of background. So Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah were kings of Israel for about a 65-year period. Jotham becomes king probably in 742 B.C. And uh, Hezekiah probably dies about 686 B.C. I, I know those dates probably mean nothing to most of you, but, but some of you that might be helpful for. Um, those kings are not directly addressed by Micah, um, but the situation that they're dealing with is is very relevant to understand what Micah is talking about in this book. Notably, Jotham and Ahaz are described as kings that did evil in the sight of the Lord. Um, Hezekiah is more of a mixed bag. He's got some reforms that happened during his life, but also some continuations of decline that happen as well. And the major issue that these kings are dealing with other than sin in the land was the nation of Assyria. All the questions that they're dealing with were centered around what do we do about Assyria? It'd be kind of like if you were living in Europe during the first half of the 20th century, all of the questions you had would be around what do we do about Germany? Uh, All the political questions, all of the Uh, big decisions, all of the questions you'd have about what is God doing in this time are really gonna center a lot around what is he doing about this threat of a foreign nation. Um, To orient us a little bit, I've got a map that that was helpful for me, it might be helpful for some of you who are watching this on the video. Um, The nation of Assyria is located north of Israel and Judah, kind of around the the modern day uh, nation of Iran, not exactly but close. and what was notable about Assyria is that they had superior military strength because they kept a standing army. And so basically they were just better at fighting and they kept winning the battles. You can kind of see on this map that they expanded their territory from, from the nation around Iran all the way from Egypt, all the way sweeping up around to um, Babylon and up north as well. And, and what they would do when they came into a land is they did not just conquer but oftentimes they would just come in and demand that the existing nation pay them tribute, kind of like paying uh, protection money to the mob, right? You're you're being protected from us invading and taking all of your stuff. And obviously, you can imagine a lot of the nations did not like this. Um, so during this time, an anti-Assyrian coalition forms between the northern kingdom of Israel and Syria, not to be confused with Assyria, but but right north of Israel is the little country of Assyria, and they got together to try to resist Assyria, and they want Judah to join in and fight with them, but uh, Judah generally stays out of this conflict, largely because the prophets, like Micah and also Isaiah, who was speaking at the same time, warned them that God is with Assyria, he's using them, and so do not join this anti-Assyria coalition because I will not help you. Now, in response to Judah's not joining the coalition, Israel and Syria actually attack Judah. They besiege all the way up to Jerusalem. But God sends Assyria down to save Judah by destroying Syria and for, then later Israel. God delivered his people by using Assyria, and actually in this period, he destroys the northern kingdom of Israel, which you're going to hear referenced in the book of Micah, because the capital there is Samaria. You're going to hear that name a few times, and even in the chapter today, that, that during Micah's reign, Samaria and Israel are totally destroyed. Judah is spared initially, but ultimately they end up kind of dabbling in rebellion themselves, especially later under Hezekiah's reign, and they uh, lose a number of their major cities and strongholds. Jerusalem is not captured during this time, but, um, but what you can see through this is that all of these questions are very much dealing with. What Micah is speaking about is the threat of invasion from Assyria that people were feeling very much in their daily lives and experiencing a lot of times, depending on exactly where you were living. And all of this kind of shows that, that this is a period of decline. Micah is speaking to a period in which God's people are getting farther and farther from him. Their situation is getting worse and worse. The the northern kingdom is destroyed. Judah is shrinking both in size and influence. And And through this, there's moral decline, right? Two kings that do evil in the sight of the Lord. And even during Hezekiah's reign, even though there's some ups, there's a number of downs as well, there's, a, there's sort of a feeling of doom and an experience of foreign oppression that are everyday realities that Micah is speaking to. And in this, Micah is revealing how God relates to his people in this situation. The prophets, I said, are giving us a picture of what God thinks and feels about the realities that we live in every day. What does God think about the nation of Assyria? How does he feel about the moral decline within his people? And what we're gonna see is that his response to this is not simple. He's got both righteousness and mercy at the same time. You're gonna see both love and the demand for justice, intention as God tries to relate to the people that he loves who have abandoned him. And that's part of what makes books like Micah a little bit difficult to read, is it's, it's hard to hold these ideas together. And that's actually the point. There's a real tension that exists in this book because there is a tension being worked out within God himself. Not that we think God is changing through any of this, but, but there's multiple ways God relates to our situation at the same time, and that's what we're seeing, that God's justice is in full force. At the same time, his love is in full force, and there's a tension created by those dual realities. Micah is a collection of what God revealed about his relationship to his people throughout the life. Probably the book was actually put together towards the end of Micah's life, and it was a collection and an intentional arrangement of the messages and the Words and the sermons that he had been speaking throughout his life. And what they're intended to do is give us a comprehensive picture of what God revealed about himself relating to his people during Micah's time. And so here, we're gonna get into it here. Chapter one, we've got the context, and now we begin to see how is God relating to this situation? What does he think about Assyria and his people at this time? So, verse 2 says, Hear, you people, all of you, pay attention, O earth and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth. And the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? So at the very beginning here, we see the Lord is coming. He's not gonna be far from the situation, but he is coming down to judge. And God's people would have wanted God to come. They would have wanted him to come and help them in their situation. And and the description of God's coming is awesome. I kind of picture like a miniature sun coming down and just melting everything around him. The mountains are melting, the valleys are turned into wax. It's, It's kind of like what it would look like if you left a bowl of ice cream outside in the middle of the summer. It's just everything is melting at the power and heat of God's coming. But but why he's coming is the real surprise here. God's people would have thought that he is coming to save them. What we find is he is coming to judge them. Imagine you're living during Micah's time. You've just read some article about how Assyria is increasing the tribute for Judah this year. You've heard talk in the marketplace about people arguing for rebellion, defending the honor of the people of Yahweh who won't be treated this way. And then you hear Micah in the streets painting a picture of God coming as a powerful miniature sun, melting everything around him. And then imagine your surprise when at the end he says, God is not coming to deal with your enemies. God is coming to deal with you, with his people. Imagine your shock, your confusion, maybe even your anger at hearing that God is not coming to deal with the problems you want him to deal with. He's coming to deal with you. God is not worried about what his people think he should be worried about. The problem he cares about is not the foreign nation of Assyria. It's that his people have abandoned him. So he goes on in verse six. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. And all her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. And all her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them, and to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. The first judgment here is declared on Samaria. That is the capital of the northern kingdom of Israel. And it is notably short. It's only a couple of verses. And that's probably because by the time this book was put together, this had already happened. By the end of Micah's life, Samaria was already destroyed. This is not so much a prediction anymore as just an illustration of what God's judgment on his people looks like. And what we find revealed here is the problem he is judging is their idolatry, that they have abandoned God for worthless idols. And here he actually kind of mocks those idols. If you notice, he he says that they were taken from the fee of a prostitute and they're gonna go back to the fee of a prostitute. That that probably would draw up images of temple prostitutes and, and the wages that the temple would get from The services of the prostitute would probably be used to buy more and more idols to fill the temple, to show the the wealth and the prosperity of those gods. And and what God is saying now is you were bought by the fee of a prostitute and now you're going to be taken away as this temple is destroyed and someone else is going to buy you with their prostitute fees. And the analogy here is those idols are no better than the prostitutes. They have no power. They are just taken by whoever buys them. And then God is gonna go on to draw a parallel from the memory of Samaria's destruction for their idolatry to a warning of coming judgment on the southern kingdom of Israel and its capital, Jerusalem. Continuing in verse eight. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it has come to Judah. It has reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Micah is wailing because, one, Samaria's wound is incurable. That is, she's already destroyed. There's no more hope for her. But that wound, the idolatry of Samaria, is now creeping to the south, to the gates of Jerusalem. And there's a double imagery going on here. Because what else is creeping down is the threat of Assyria coming down out of the north. It's creeping into Judah's territory. They're worried it's going to overtake even the gates of Jerusalem. But what Micah is saying is that the real threat is not the nation of Assyria coming down. It's the idolatry of the northern kingdom that's creeping into Judah, to the southern kingdom. And this is what Micah is lamenting for. There's a double image in his lament as well. Because on the one hand, you would think of being wailing, being stripped naked as a vivid picture of what it looks like for captives to be led away. When Assyria comes, this is what it's going to look like. This is how you will be taken out of the nation. But but the fact that it's Micah wailing and lamenting, going stripped and naked, means that he is identifying with God's people. He is picturing himself what is gonna look like for their sins, and he is weeping for the judgment that God is bringing. It's kind of a funny connection, isn't it? If, If God is the one bringing the judgment, why is Micah, his prophet, lamenting? it it kind of seems like God is saying, I'm coming to punish you and I'm brokenhearted about it." it. It's not a picture that lends itself to simple explanations. Dale Ralph Davis, in commenting on this passage, says this, he says, a prophet is one who fearlessly threatens God's people with God's judgment and then goes home and weeps shamelessly over that judgment because he cares so much for the people who are to be judged. And can we not see in Micah one greater than Micah? God's feelings toward his sinful people are both a mixture of wrath and love at the same time. And we begin to see that even in this initial declaration of his judgment. There's no obvious answers given here for how God is going to resolve that tension. How both of these emotions can have a happy resolution fitting resolution but um, but that's what we're supposed to see that that this is not a simple situation the way God relates to sinful people is not simple and then Micah continues his lament with a bunch of wordplay that's honestly just pretty hard to translate into English so I'm going to read this and then I'm going to kind of go back through and and give you a little picture of what Micah is trying to do here Um, Verse 10 he says, tell it not in Gath, weep not at all in Bethlehophra, roll yourselves in dust, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shephir. In nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zion do not come out. The lamentation of Beth Ezel shall take away from you its standing place. For the inhabitants of Meroth wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gates of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion. For in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Morsheth Gath. The house of Exod shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Mereshach. The glory of Israel shall come to Adalam, Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair for the children of your delight. Make yourself as bald as the eagle for they shall go from you into exile. There's a lot of rhyming and wordplay here. Dale Ralph David's commentary does a pretty valiant job of trying to capture what these phrases are trying to get at. Um, the, The words rhyme or sound the same or have some sort of pun involved in them. Um, between the judgment he's describing and the name of the town he's talking about. It would be kind of like this. It'd say, do not gab in gath. In dust town, Bethlehophra, in dust town, roll yourself in dust. Pass on residents of Beautyburg in shameful nakedness. The residents of Marchville do not march forth. The residents of Bitterton long for good. The houses of Deceitville have proven deceitful. Those are are loose translations of what Micah is saying here, but um, I think you get the picture that these lines are meant to be pretty dramatic. Not exaggerations so much, but expressions of deep grief. Some of the towns mentioned here actually do fall to Assyria during during Micah's life. And so when you think of Micah coming up with these phrases, don't imagine him just sitting at home trying to come up with the, the cleverest rhymes that he can, but Picture a man in the street with torn clothes, a tremor in his voice, wailing. Maybe he's wearing a sign that says, the end is nigh. Screaming these phrases for all to hear. He's giving striking phrases of the coming destruction because he doesn't want them to come out of your head. He wants them to be stuck there. They're not meant to be clever. They're meant to stick in your mind and unsettle you. And why is Micah weeping in the street? Not just because of the coming destruction on these people, not because of the oppression of foreign nations. He is weeping because of the sin and idolatry that's creeping down among God's people and the coming judgment that God is bringing on their sin. The heart of God in this situation shows shows what he cares about in this judgment. He could fix the Assyria problem in an instant. He he did so many times throughout Israel's history. They'd come all the way to the gates and he just knocked them out. It actually happens once during Micah's life. And it's not that he doesn't care about the problem of Assyria, but but how is God going to deal with his people's rejection of him? He must be judge and yet he loves the one he's judging. He's declaring destruction with tears. Where's the happy ending here? How does this possibly resolve? This is the center of what God is showing us. This is the heart of his judgment. And I think we should read this and ask the question, do we treat sin as seriously as God does? With all the problems that we deal with on a daily basis, do we see our continual abandonment of God as the central problem of humanity do we tend to assume that god can forgive our sins but are unsure that he can fix the bigger problems because god's talking as if it's the other way around that the problems we deal with in the world are easy for him to fix but changing men's heart is what's hard And if God came down today, what would he see? What would be on his agenda? What would he be looking to fix, number one? Would it be the coronavirus that we're dealing with? Would it be our political problems, identity politics, culture wars, Supreme Court decisions? Would it be economic instability, the relationship with China? Those things matter. It's not that God doesn't care about them but what we see in Micah is that the first thing God addresses when he comes down is his people's sin, their abandonment of him for worthless idols. And whose sin is it that God would come to judge? Do do we think in this story that Assyria is better than Judah and that's why judgment is proclaimed on God's people? Do we think God is going to be most concerned just with whoever's doing the worst job at the moment? Do you think if God came down, he would be looking to judge the progressives or the conservatives? Would he be most angry with the Trump supporters or the Black Lives Matters t-shirt wearers? Or do we see that God holds his people responsible first. All people will be judged by God. There's not to argue a negative here. Just because Assyria is not mentioned here doesn't mean God won't judge them elsewhere. In fact, if you read Isaiah speaking at the same time, they get their whole chapter. But Israel and Judah get many more chapters. God's standard for his people is much higher, and he looks to us first. If God came down, as a miniature son, to speak to you about the problems going on, how comfortable would you be with that? Micah 1 shows us that God's judgment is not just out there on those people. It is first for those who call themselves by his name. And we should feel the weight of that. There's not much hope given here in Micah 1. But this is where the book starts, with a prophet weeping and wailing at the sin of God's own people and it leaves that doom hanging unresolved. In the coming weeks, we're gonna learn more about what this sin looks like, what the heart of the judge is as he sees it and and what he's going to do about it. Because we're gonna see that God is not going to be satisfied to leave his people here or to leave them simply with judgment. So I hope you'll come back with us in the coming weeks to find more about how God views this situation and how he promises to one day fix it. Thank you.